Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Dan Dees. I'm the co-head of the Investment Banking Division. And I am thrilled to be joined here today by my good friend Dikembe Mutombo. Dikembe, thank you for being here thank with us. Thank you for having me. We are excited to have you here because you're an extraordinary person to talk to for a lot of reasons, but we want to focus on two of them. One is basketball and the other is philanthropy. Uh, and you've been you know I retire now. <laughs> Something tells me you can still get out there and, and give me a run. But uh, look, on, on the basketball side, by way of intro, you were one of the greatest players of all time. And on the philanthropy side, you're one of the great philanthropists of our time. On the philanthropy side, you started the Dikembe Mutombo Foundation in 1997. And over the last 20 years, he's helped hundreds of thousands of people throughout the Democratic Republic of, Cong uh, of Congo to start. Just to frame and give people context, because for me, this is one of the stats that, that, that says how extraordinary you are. What percentage of your wealth did you contribute to kind of start these foundations? Have you given to these foundations? Um, I would say between 75 to 80 percent. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary standard. I want to know, I want to get a sense of, of how someone gets raised with that heart uh, and wants to help like that. So DRC. You had 10 brothers and sisters? 10 of you in total? Yeah, 10 in total. All your Two size? They're short. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the average height is like 6'9", six, 6'10". Six, yeah. yeah, the, the shortest person is 6'5". Really? Yes. 10 kids. I have five kids. I think, I think my five D's kids equals like one Mutombo child in terms of volumes. Right? They stack up. So, um, that's amazing. All right, so, so, so 10 kids uh, growing up out there. How did, that, how did your upbringing shape who you are today and your philanthropic bias? I think I always give credit to my parents. I think um, I was lucky and fortunate to be raised by good parents. My mom um, was just a church-going woman, and my dad, who was a deacon, but he was a teacher. His duty was to serve the nation and to teach many generations. I think uh, it kind of helped a little bit to his family as well. Yep, yep. And so, raised there and then you come to Georgetown. You came to Georgetown on an academic scholarship. I read somewhere, I read in your bio you speak nine languages. Just a little bit. <laughs> if you don't mind, we'll conduct this in English because it's my, my, my best and, and only language. We can go in French. <laughs> let's, keep it, let's keep it in English. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, okay, so you came to Georgetown, yes. not as a basketball player. And so how did that all play? How, how did you end up wandering into basketball? You know, going to school, you can go, it doesn't matter how tall you are. And uh, that was something kind of uh, got so many people confused the first time I arrived at Georgetown University. Uh, everybody was just wondering how Who's this tall guy? What is he doing here? Why, why is he not in the basketball team? But I, 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 I won a scholarship. I always want to become a doctor. Um, that been my dream since I was a child. I want to serve the people. I want to help heal people. And I went to Georgetown as a pre-med. And uh, 
thanks to the U.S. government for giving me a scholarship as a young boy to come to America. But it didn't turn out to be the way it was planned. But uh, I think uh, I went back to do what was on my dream as a child, and I'm doing it now today, which was serving the humanity. Right, right, fantastic. So we'll get to there in a second. But so you're you're walking around Georgetown's campus, what John Thompson just kind of looked up and said, that dude should play on my team. How, how did he find you? No, I started with my dean the day of the registration. Everybody was like, oh, why are you registering here? The basketball player, they have their own <laughs> section. <laughs> I'm not on the team. You know, I'm just a regular student. And, and uh, my dean, she's still around. Uh, she was a little bit confused. And, uh, she said, no, you need to be on the basketball team. I'm going to call over there. We need to have you on the basketball team. I said, no. <laughs> and next time I knew, everybody started talking, and I was invited uh, to Father Healy office, uh, the school president, to come talk to him. Uh, and I found out that he used to live in the Congo in the 50, which uh, turned out to be good. All right, so John Thompson got you on his team, the most, one of the most elite teams in the country. And then, um, and you got teamed up with Alonzo Mourning. Yes. How was that? What, what, that relationship and those early days of... It's the best. It was the best. I think um, if I didn't have someone like Alonzo Mourning um, going on a battle with me every day, I don't think I would have become the Kimmermatomo that I am today. Hmm. Because he was all America, all McDonald's, all big, Barbara King, you call Wendy. <laughs> He was already big. Uh, when he walked on campus, uh, he was a god walking in the yeah. earth. So yeah. um, I was like, well, I have to go with this guy every day. <laughs> and the coach kind of challenged me to find a way to stop him in practice. Yeah. He said, I don't care what you're doing. Just don't let him score. So I think uh, those teaching kind of helped me to become him the best defense basketball player that I've become. All right, so then, then you were the fourth draft choice in 1991. I don't know what those other three teams were, were thinking. They whiffed. Oh, no. I could have been drafted number one, but I just didn't want to go to, I didn't want to go to Charlotte. Um, oh, is that right? I didn't want to go to Sacramento. Sorry for the people from Sacramento. I always think Sacramento is, <laughs> I always think Sacramento is one of the boring cities in America. <laughs> No offense. No, it's true. <laughs> uh, um, I didn't want to go to New Jersey. <laughs> uh, there was nothing to do over there. Right. <laughs> so I was like, nah. And they was losing so much. And uh, yeah. I was like, I'm not going. <laughs> I said, maybe go to Denver would be good. You know what? When you get drafted, sometimes you can express yourself to a team. Yeah. So the three teams that were picking on the front, you have to go visit them and uh, talk to them, see if they can draft you. I just called them and said, I'm not coming. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about me. Don't draft me. <laughs> okay, now I understand why you were the fourth pick. <laughs> All right, makes sense. Makes sense. So, and... I read, I read recently you were only the third ever Africa-born player at that time to play in the NBA. Yes. It's pretty extraordinary. And how did people back home react when you were drafted, when you were this 
big, big NBA star. I think it was a big news for the continent that uh, the door was opening for the future generation to believe that uh, they can make it to the NBA. That's why I'm so proud today as I go to sleep every night, knowing that uh, there's been more than 30-some African descent kids who are playing in the NBA today, so it's been great. Yeah. It's been great. We're very proud. You, you built a great legacy. So uh, where, did the, where did the finger wag start? Which game? That one I don't know, you know. <laughs> Just happened. It happened. Uh, I didn't do it in college because in college you get kicked out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and when I came to the NBA, I used to shake my head and then I felt like nobody was respecting me. And I said maybe go with the finger in the face. <laughs> it would catch the intention. But they didn't. And um, people was create this resistance, keep challenging me, which helped me to becoming uh, all a family. Um, I think so many guys just, they respect me at the beginning, but they was like, I just want to get one in Mutombo. You know, <laughs> if I can just don't come Mutombo, you know, that's the reason why you see a guy like Michael George is still happy today for the rest of his life because he got one done. <laughs> you only got one? He got one, and every time we go somewhere, I say, Dick, remember, I got you. I got <laughs> I say, Michael, you play like 15 years, so you're proud of getting <laughs> you know. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> it bothers you. You know, he got one and I got like about 40, so <laughs> I got more statistics. Okay, so that, but, but the, finger, the, the, the finger wag became like your branding back then. And now you see all these athletes, these NBA stars, whose brand becomes almost bigger than the league and bigger than their teams because they can go direct to their fan base and the like. How's that, how's that changed the game? How's it changed the athlete? It changed because... You know, when I did play, we didn't have no social media. Um, thanks God, there was no social media. <laughs> uh, but um, I would play it today, they can uh, cre recreate themselves when they get to the NBA. They can talk to their fans. They can interact to their fans. It's not like a, after the game, you have to wait for uh, the reporter to come to the locker room to talk to you. You can uh, go and tweet something after the game how happy you are from your performance and tell your fans how you play. And what do you think, just as you take that extension out and people talking directly to their fans, a lot of athletes now speak out about issues. Yes. They speak out in, in, in the way they act before the game, during the game, after the game, the things they say. You always spoke your mind about things. How do you feel about how that's impacting the game, impacting the athlete? Sometimes it makes them more popular, sometimes less. What are the issues with that? I think, um, you know, one thing we have in this country is um, freedom of expression. It's been the greatest thing. Um, even though we have people who are trying to shut it down, but it is what it is. Um, we as a player, we have a great platform um, to mobilize people in different issues um, that is facing our society. Um, I don't think if I have not played a game of basketball and be on a platform that I am on, I would have been able to tell the world what is happening in Africa. 
when it comes to health issue or basketball and some of the things the NBA are doing. Um, so being an athlete, it just depends how you are playing. And if you get to, you reach some level that you can talk to the mass and the world can listen to you, why don't you use it? So I'm so happy that some of our players are using the platform um, to make the world understand some of this, the things that we're facing in our society today. Um, it's great. It's been great for our players. So um, how's the game? I think back to when you played. Yes. And it was a bunch of guys your size banging into each other. It was a much different game. Much stronger, much bigger. <laughs> some of the guys were, were, were big. As now big. we got... <laughs> <laughs> and they're shooting very far, too. Yeah, so how's the game changed? What? I mean, could you even play in today's game? You know what? I just met with the commissioner yesterday, like for, the former commissioner, like for four hours yesterday, Devastone. We were talking. I said, Dave, I would have not played to the game today. I, I don't know if I would have fit to the game. Huh. It'd be hard. I am not going to guard Steph Curry way up there. <laughs> My knee will be blown up. <laughs> they don't have nobody posting up, so it's gonna be, I gotta wait about 40 minutes before I get one shot, one block shot. So, nobody drive to the basket, everybody stand outside doing this. <laughs> uh, it's gonna be different. Another place where the game's changed, but I want your, your view is, you, know, you were a four-year guy at Georgetown, everyone yes. was four years back then, and now you have this whole one and done. Yeah, it's called one and done. Yeah. How, what's, your, what's your view on that, and how does that evolve over time? Um, you know, we have to look at life in a different form. And we have to understand that uh, the game of basketball that we love so much will be over one day, and the ball will stop bouncing. And uh, question come, where do we go from there? And in the average career in the NBA, is now like a two year and a half to three years. And you have a kids coming out from college now when they're 18, 19 years old, and you throw a million, million dollars to them to play in the NBA. And when they go there after three years, they cannot perform because they was not mentally fit. And they get pushed out. So there's a lot of things that players go through, but we are trying to find a way. For me, I still believe that a young man, you have to go to college for four years. If you cannot go to college for four years, at least go for three years. That way you have a year left that you can come back. But every year, you have more than 150 basketball players lose their job out of the 420. Hmm. And they disappear just like that. Nobody cannot find them. And so, you know next year, in the summer of 2019, more than 150 to 200 players will lose their job because you have all those newcomers coming. So it's a really bumpy road. So education remains only the key of yeah. our success. Yeah. That sounds right. The, uh, talk, talk about your role as the NBA global ambassador. Where are you taking the game? What are you, what are you guys doing with it all around? Um, we're fighting now to take the game. Our mission is Africa and India. Uh, we are talking about uh, 1.314 million people in India, maybe another 1.4 billion people in Africa. So you combine that, you're talking, you have almost close to 3 billion people. So if you can 
reach the market and uh, I think uh, the NBA will produce maybe another $10 billion beside what they're making in China. So the league is now, it's like $8 billion game. Can you imagine when we get to India and uh, we get Africa the way it's going now? Then you edit South Africa. No, uh, South America. Yeah. I believe players in the next three years or four will be, will be reaching, uh, they will be making 60 to $70 million. They will. There's no way to stop it because the TV revenue is still going up so fast in Asia. People are watching the game four times on TV, on their phone, on the computer. Yeah. The league is collecting all of the money from left and right. So it's incredible. And uh, oh. the way the law is set, players get 51% of the revenue. The NBA get 49, the owners get 49. So more as the money keeps going up, when we get to 20 billion, guys will continue. There's nothing to stop it. It's incredible how, how healthy the game is. It's in, it's in great shape. The game is in great shape. So talk about the foundation. You yes. formed a foundation in 1997, kind of at the height of your career, in the middle of your career. Why'd you form it? What were you trying to do? I just got sick and tired of seeing people dying in a young age in Africa. And um, I was always trying to figure out what I want to do in life uh, besides playing the game of basketball. I know I have a dream to becoming a doctor. It didn't work out. The game of basketball took my dream away. But I searched my soul a lot, trying to figure out what I want to do. Then uh, after my mom's death, I realized that uh, maybe building a hospital would be a great thing. And how's it going? Give us the update on how the foundation's going and what you've done. The foundation is doing good. So we have treated almost more than a half a million people so far in the last 10 years. It's a great success. Uh, now we are attacking cancer. Uh, more women are dying from cancer also because of lack of access on technology. But the hospital, like our hospital, we are trying to provide those technology and uh, be able to test as many women we can and also treat them. You don't want to test them. You can have MRI and CT scan and all of that stuff. The question was five years ago after we installed the CT scan, what are you doing for those who are funding with cancer? And we realized that we have to go fund money and uh, treat them. So when the money came in, we were able now to train our staff because you want to train the training. So we're getting all those American doctors who I keep going every month to train my doctor to make sure that one day my doctors will be doing the job that the Americans are doing at the Mutombo Hospital. So they don't have to keep coming all the time. Okay, so, you, so you're building up a local expertise. How, yes. What, what is the environment like over there, though? How many hospitals are there in the city? How many major hospitals that can do this type of work? Mm. Like... For example, like in pathology lab, we are the second hospital to have a pathology lab. Even at the university hospital, they don't have a pathology lab. So that tells you what we're doing. Um, there's few hospitals in Kinshasa. It used to be four or five hospitals. You know, the population, 80 million people, you only have about five hospitals. 
and all the hospital was downtown in one place. So it doesn't matter where you live. If your wife is pregnant, once you have a baby, you gotta catch a cab, drive for an hour. It's amazing, and I thank God a lot. The area where I chose to build the hospital is the area where nobody really didn't think about helping those people in the community. And I went, we went and put the hospital there. And today as we are talking, the neighborhood have changed. More people are living close there because there's the hospital. How do you get other players to follow your lead? And do you find the character of the players now that they want to start giving back? Like I think so. Um, it's amazing to see how our players are following my footsteps. It's amazing. Uh, at the beginning, it didn't happen and from the 90s, uh, but this new generation that came in allowed them to uh, want to become like the Kemi Mutombo. They want to have an impact in a society where people will remember their contribution to the, to the humanity. And uh, you see yeah, in China was building multiple schools and uh, um, house for the poor and uh, basketball court, YMCA. You see guys like LeBron who go on and build a school and donate almost half of his money. And when they ask those guys, why are you doing this? They say, because we did have a good teacher. His name is Kim Mutombo. So I'm so happy that I did set an example for so many people to follow. And um, now I can sit down one day, I can say, I contributed and I made a difference. That's fantastic. What's next? What's next for you and what's next for the foundation? I want to build a school. That's my next dream, and maybe in a year or two. I'm going to build a high school, bio, biochemistry high school. Uh, because you have to train the future doctor. Because I'm struggling sometimes to identify the future doctor who are going to work at the Mutamba Hospital. Because I want to... I'm doing this for me, but I'm doing also for my dad. You know? uh, he taught for more than 38 years. Uh, and, uh, and then school system in Congo, but uh, there's nothing uh, standing there for his memory, for his contribution. So I want, I did something for my mom now. I want to have something that people will learn also about Samuel Mutombo, the man who, who brought me into this world. That's fantastic. It's beautiful. Thank you for all you do with the world and the standard you're setting for all of us. So thank you. This podcast was recorded on November 8th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, 
The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.